0: This podcast sponsored by the American Society for Information Science and Technology. Since 1937, ASIS has been the society for information professionals, leading the search for new and better theories, techniques, and technologies to improve access to information by the IA Summit. This year, your peers and industry experts spoke about how topics such as social networking, gaming, patterns, tagging, taxonomies, and a wide range of IA tools and techniques help users experience information. And by Boxes and Arrows. Since 2001, Boxes and Arrows has been a peer-written journal promoting contributors who want to provoke thinking, push limits, and teach a few things along the way. For more events happening all over the world, be sure and check out events.boxesandarrows.com. In this fast-paced session, Peter describes a pattern language for search that explains user psychology and information-seeking behavior highlights emerging technologies and interaction models, illustrates repeatable solutions to common problems, and positions us all to design better search interfaces and applications. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. let
1: will get the, the bad news out on the table first. I will not be presenting a new three-circle diagram, you know? And I'm not even going to attempt to provide a concise definition of search. And I won't even really be talking about the value of search, although I do believe that it is not a solved problem. In fact, search is one of the biggest problems and opportunities within the user experience space. Instead, I'm going to present... A beautiful nine-circle diagram. (laughs) And try to focus our attention not just on the core example of search, but on many different edge cases of search and on the relationships between search and other topics and disciplines. This is uh, an exercise in trying to reframe or redefine how we think about search, and to recognize that we need to look not only at the very tiny details that are required to get search right, but also at the big picture of how search fits into the broader user experience and the broader system in which we're working. But let's start out with by talking about patterns. Many of us in this community uh, were... First introduced to patterns by the work of Christopher Alexander, an architect who wrote a beautiful book called The Timeless Way of Building, in in which he explains that only through the, the, the examination of patterns of behavior and design can we truly hope to build beautiful buildings and great spaces. And in his subsequent books, he goes on to really articulate a pattern language consisting of hundreds of patterns, design patterns, that have been shown to work in a variety of contexts. And he describes the way that these patterns can be combined and nested in interesting and useful and beautiful ways. And there were a lot of folks in the software and design communities who were inspired by Alexander's work, and have striven to create pattern libraries within the software and design communities. One example is Jennifer Tidwell, who began with an online pattern library for interaction design and interface design, and went on to to write a book to capture some of the most interesting and important patterns. And many of us are familiar with Yahoo's work in this area, right? Right? Like many organizations, Yahoo uses pattern libraries internally to ensure that they are really sort of moving towards quality and consistency within their interface and interaction design and information architecture work across many different applications and websites. And Yahoo took the the extra step of, of making their pattern library public and sharing it with all of us so we can learn from their work as well. So, inspired by all of these examples, I decided earlier this year to create an informal pattern library of my own. and you know I've, being kind of lazy and cheap i didn't didn't want to create a whole new website and a whole new set of functionality and i I, I went looking for you know what can i what can I kind of borrow and and I decided to to borrow Flickr, which has proven to be a really wonderful platform for sharing and talking about examples let me just show you real quickly here so within this pattern library i've collected a number of examples of the various contexts in which we deal with search challenges whether it's small websites or large websites the enterprise search challenge within organizations e-commerce music media and the list goes on We'll, we'll take a look at some examples Also, started to capture some patterns. Patterns like best bets and faceted navigation. And let's take a look at one example here. If we say we go into e commerce, got a couple of sets here. I'll choose Etsy. i've got a number of screenshots of etsy i'm able to combine text and visuals and what's really cool is not only am i able to present the image but i'm also able to use the notes feature to describe you know highlight and describe various parts of the interface and i can tag and provide descriptions below and not only that, but I've, I'm inviting all of you and everybody out there to come and add their own notes and their own tags and their own comments. And so it becomes a really wonderful uh, opportunity for conversation about a variety of images. It's an opportunity for what Dennis Schleicher called this morning in his IA in Placemaking talk uh, for for triangulation, where a couple of different people or many different people can look at the same object and comment on it and and and... And and learn from each other. And just uh, one more note: you can blow these up to all size to to larger size, and pop it into your own PowerPoint presentation. So that's for any of you who out there who are lazy yourselves, that will be helpful. Okay. What one of the categories uh, that I've been uh, sort of developing is just a category for contextual diagrams about search. And I've started fleshing out some ideas in terms of behavior patterns. What are some of the common behaviors that we know users engage in? Narrowing being one of the most common, right? Because users enter a couple of keywords, or 2.5 keywords to be exact, and they get too many results. And so they have to narrow or filter. We also know that given half a chance, users will move very fluidly between the modes of searching and browsing and asking. They don't think of search as some separate thing. It's just part of the process of finding what they're looking for. And we know that expert searchers will have their own search strategies, like pearl growing, where they'll find one good document and then use the metadata within that document, the author and the source subject terms or keywords, bibliographic citations, to kind of grow, uh, to explore other relevant and interesting documents, kind of growing from that one starting point. And I've also started trying to illustrate some design patterns. What are some things that we have seen out there in in the wild that seem to work pretty well? And I'm going to touch on some of these as we go forward. Let's take best bets. We know that with most websites, most search systems, there are a small number of queries that are extremely common. And so there's absolutely a return on investment for human editorial effort to make some good recommendations for good starting points. We see examples like the National Cancer Institute, where they break those best bets out separately, and we also see examples where the best bets are are fairly uh, subtly integrated within the search results themselves. An example like Hewlett-Packard, where they use best bets as an opportunity for query disambiguation. We know you're looking for a laser jet printer, but do you want to buy one? Do you want to just learn more about it? And they use also the opportunity for cross selling and upselling. Okay, if we know you're interested in laser jet printers, here's something else you might be interested in. Okay. Federated search. Okay. Users don't know which database you hid the information in. Okay, so we need to look at opportunities to search across sites, across databases. I love the Ann Arbor District Library but they suffer from a problem very common to libraries, whether public or academic. Most users know to look in the catalog for books. Most users have no idea that there's this wonderful repository of articles hidden under that research tab, and they don't conceive of what they're doing as being research. I'm looking for a new air conditioner. I didn't know that... Consumer Reports is, is sort of there, hidden within one of those databases. We need to find ways to bring the books and the articles together. And this has got a lot of implications for enterprise search. When I talk with users inside my clients' organizations, they very often don't know which site to look on. They don't even know whether we, they should be looking on the intranet or on the external sites, never mind the library and all the databases that they have. I worked with Purdue Libraries last fall on this particular challenge. How can we support federated search across books and articles? And It's not an easy problem to solve. There's a lot of technological hurdles, but we're moving in the right direction. They haven't haven't yet implemented the back end, so you'll have to wait a few months to see the, the actual result of that work. You can't really talk about federated search without talking about faceted navigation. This is one of my favorite patterns, providing people with multiple ways to search and browse through information by narrowing. I'll take a look at a simple example, shopping.com. Faceted navigation supports the way that people think and behave with relation to search. They're impatient. They want to get started. They want to enter their couple of keywords, and they want to see some results. So facet navigation, we we get the standard result display, but hey, on the left-hand side, look what we got. Faceted metadata, fields and values that serve a couple of really important purposes. One is they serve as a map to my search results. What is it that I'm looking at? What's here? And that actually helps educate them about the broader collection of content. But it also gives them the opportunity to narrow, to refine, to explain exactly what they're looking for. Faceted navigation blurs the lines between searching and browsing. An epicurious faceted navigation is part of the browsing experience, not part of the searching experience. This example from Amazon shows the power of faceted navigation to enable a regular user to basically articulate a, a very sophisticated Boolean query. But they don't all have to do it all at once. They do it through a series of very small, simple steps. NCSU libraries uh, were, were among the, the first high-profile examples of taking the old card catalog, the old online catalog model, and transforming it into a faceted navigation model. And it's a nice example of the importance of paying attention to details. They have done a wonderful job of usability testing and doing user research and studying their usage logs and their search analytics and improving their faceted navigation interface uh, month after month after month. We know that's the little things that make a big difference. Making sure that you present the number, the number of results you'll find hidden behind this value. Very important detail that a number of implementations miss. And we have to think carefully about how do we allow people to step backwards to relax a particular selection. Here we see that There are a number of different interface elements that we can use to support faceted navigation. We want to try to stick with fairly simple interface elements. Here we see pull-down menus with still having that that number of of hits within that uh, selection. Uh, Some folks are calling these scented widgets, bringing that kind of uh, detail into a pull-down menu but links and pull-down menus and checkboxes, very simple interface elements that users can be, f- be comfortable with. EBA Express, a nice example where, uh, of, of your freedom in terms of where you place the selection criteria. And if you, you need to think about you know, the, the right balance between a very subtle implementation and an overwhelming implementation. How can we make sure that users see these opportunities but they're not overwhelmed or daunted by them? Brazilians, an example where not only are you able to narrow according to traditional faceted metadata, but they've also enabled user-generated tag fields so that users can tag products according to best uses and pros and cons. And those, in turn, become faceted metadata fields that we can narrow. And so we can say, I'm looking for a digital camera that has simple controls, not an option that you have on on many websites. Uh, VW in the UK has a, a really kind of beautiful implementation. Let me kind of go over to the site for this. So here we're... Navigating through a, a selection of vehicles. And I can sort of play with the check boxes. Say, you know, I'm, I don't want, I'm not looking for diesel or manual. But what I thought was sort of nice is this, this, this attention to detail here. As I move the slider, the ones that are excluded kind of get, get grayed out. And so I'm getting feedback while I'm moving the slider as to how far I've gone and narrowing the selection. And then once I release, I get a new presentation. Okay, so faceted navigation doesn't have to look ugly or you know, text heavy. Yeah, it, can be, it can be done in a lot of different ways. Okay. Like I said, I'm not going to spend a lot of time defending the value of search. But there's a lot of search engine vendors out there that will, and they've got some pretty remarkable statistics In terms of how a better search solution can increase conversion rates, average order sizes when you're dealing with e-commerce, or simply help people get to content and find more content and make more use out of the stuff that you have for them. Another really interesting pattern is auto-suggest. And this kind of you know pushes us into thinking about details that uh, we would traditionally consider part of interaction design. Okay. Now, the, the most common implementation of auto suggest involves suggesting queries based on your own history or on the most popular searches overall. And so we've seen Google as a pioneer in that area. But we're also seeing innovative uh, applications of, of the, the, you know, taking that auto-complete function and leveraging it to support best bets. Apple's uh, a really nice example. Here I've typed IP into the search box, and I've already got a really attractive-looking menu where it says, are you looking for the iPhone or the iPod or iTunes? Um, making some good recommendations for starting points that may allow me to completely bypass the search results interface and just, with one click, get to where where I'm going. Structured results, another interesting pattern. Again, Google kind of leading the way. We're seeing some interesting convergence of structured and unstructured information. We can't think about data and information separately if the user doesn't. And so we're seeing interesting ways of bringing structure into the search results interface. In this example, if I'm looking for what what hours is the library open, I don't even need to go to the the library's homepage anymore. I can click on that subcategory right from Google's search results interface. What are the ways in which we can do this within our interfaces? And by the way, that search in .12 seconds Speed is incredibly important. One of the many reasons why Google succeeds is because of that speed. Because a user can enter a couple of keywords, get some results, realize they're not quite what they're looking for, enter another search, and another search, and another search, all in like five seconds. Right? There's a lot of s- search systems out there on websites where it takes you 50 seconds to, to get a look at the results. We have to push hard on speed. Social search is, is, is still, I would argue, on the bleeding edge. Okay? But we're seeing a lot of interesting experiments in how can we take social data and use it to improve the relevance or at least the, the value and the interest of the, the first few results. Flickr right? has used their, their most interesting, their interesting, interestingness algorithm, Right? to sort of bring really interesting pictures to the top. And Flickr also enables us very fluidly to move between people and content. Another, Another way that we can bring people into the experience. And of course, there are many, many sites out there and applications that are not using that social data, and they're suffering as a result. In this example, we see a search for the little prince, And the first result up is the little lame prints. That's probably not the one you were looking for. We take it for granted that that Amazon and Google are going to leverage social data and an understanding of popularity to bring the most well-known results to the top first. This slide's a bit of a placeholder. I've been talking with the folks at IBM responsible for the W3 intranet experience. And they've been doing some really interesting stuff in the social space. I didn't get the slide in time uh, through their legal department. But they've been doing a few things. So, so many of us have heard about some of the work they've done with enabling uh, enterprise 2.0 functions like bookmarking, and blogs and wikis and so forth. And once they had all this great social data and information out there, they started thinking about how do we leverage that in interesting new ways. And one of those was to bring some of the value of that that data into the enterprise search experience. And they started out first kind of using that Google-tabbed approach. So when you did a search on their internet environment, you would get the main enterprise search results, and along the top you'd get a series of tabs where you could click on blogs or wikis or bookmarked resources that match your query. And nobody clicked on them. But instead of giving up and saying nobody cares about this content, they tried a new model of presenting that data along the right-hand side, similar to what you see here. Not just with the the, the, the headlines, but exposing some of the content itself. And all of a sudden, usage skyrocketed. Click, lots and lots of click-throughs. People were fascinated by the content. They just hadn't known what was hidden there. Hey, little changes in the interface can make a huge difference in success. And then they've been taking this a step further, and they've been integrating that social data into the ranking algorithms, so that if a resource has been bookmarked by a lot of people, it's going to get boosted to the top of the results. Okay? Really interesting work, and they're having a lot of great uh, feedback and, and success. Okay? Another category I think is really fascinating is media search, whether we're looking for books, or music, or images, or video, okay? other non-text formats. And Some of these rely on keyword search, others, re- others actually allow us to query by shape and texture, and color, and sound. We saw yesterday, for those of you who were in Steven Anderson's talk, Songza. Okay, wonderful example about thinking differently about the search results interface. Right? This is a search results interface that's also a jukebox. And They've sort of applied a lot of really interesting interaction design principles to making this a more attractive and usable interface. Another fun one, to take a quick look at here. Oscope, okay, where I can query a bunch of different sites: Amazon, eBay, Flickr, YouTube, and so forth. And I can within there I can select while well, I'm interested in Amazon UK. And I want to query books. I'm going to enter my search. User experience. This is kind of a different way of presenting search results. Not necessarily something you could you should rush out and do for your corporate website, right? But it gets us thinking a little differently. And it might just, it might just kind of you might have one of those light bulb experiences. Hey, there is something different we can do here. By the way, my favorite view here is uh, the pile. <laughs> okay. Everything is miscellaneous, right? Okay. Another, another interface at the bleeding edge is uh, Microsoft Live doing some image searching here. Okay. Again, not something I'd recommend you go home and copy. But it stretches our imagination. It's a drag and drop interface, so we're starting to see some experiments there. It's also got this infinite scroll capability. I can, I can scroll forever. It kind of moves beyond that simple pattern of showing the first 10 results and then the next 10 results. And so you can scroll forever, and in usability testing, people do. They keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, and they're trying to find the bottom. I actually consider this an anti-pattern. This is not something that is recommended in almost any context. But it's it's kind of interesting to know you can do it. Like.com, sort of a visual shopping engine that lets us find items by color and shape and pattern. There's all kinds of scary possibilities when you start talking about pattern recognition software, uh, you know, the ability to sort of do searches based on people's faces. Many of you are probably being captured as you as I speak right now. Um, another category: mobile search. Okay, the only thing I really want to point out about this at, at the moment is, uh, I just I just kind of had to finally give up with, on my old trusty trio. And uh, I moved to a, a BlackBerry Curve, and one of the interesting things is that because it's a, you know, it's a, it's got, it's a faster device, and it's got faster processor, and it's, it's more efficient, and it's got a much, much better screen. All of a sudden, I'm finding myself using it for a lot more applications, and search becomes a lot more feasible. And as our devices and our bandwidth continue to improve, we're going to continue to see an expansion in what we think of as as kind of a reasonable use of these mobile devices. And I think we're going to to be searching a lot more from that platform. Pushing out into the the kind of more futuristic topics, spine search, the uh, term that the science fiction author Bruce Sterling coined for objects that are precisely located in space and time, objects that know where they are and know their own history. We can start talking about what are the ways in which we're going to be able to query the physical environment. Okay. Mike Konyovsky uh, uh, was sort of behind this, this really kind of beautiful search results interface. Okay. What you're looking at there is a search results interface where you can query a collection of wine using a mobile device, and the results will sort of light up in different colors, right, helping you to find that that one bottle of wine you're looking for. Cisco's wireless location appliance. Okay. Within, a, um, within a wireless network area, we can use RFID to tag and track high-value objects.
0: Okay.
1: One of the first return on investment cases was in the hospital environment. Hospitals are apparently always losing their wheelchairs. Okay. and It's not that they're stolen. They're, people forget which, which, which hall or... Room the wheelchair was left in, and they spent an awful lot of staff time searching for wheelchairs. Okay? By tagging and tracking those high value objects, they're able to save a tremendous amount of staff time. It's worth thinking about what are the high value objects in your business, whether it's objects or people. We need to continue to redefine search to examine the, frame, the way that we frame the challenge or the problem. Okay? And I think Google has provided a lot of leadership in this area. Okay? They keep expanding what we think of as the searchable web. Right? Their mission statement of organizing the world's information, and making it accessible and findable, they define that word information extremely broadly. Right? and So we see applications like Google Book Search, taking millions of academic texts and making them part of what we think of as the searchable web. And we've seen applications like EveryZing, using automated speech-to-text translation technology to take podcasts, whether video or audio, and create rough machine transcripts that are then become searchable. A really interesting interface where I can not only play the whole podcast, but I can click on any any word in the text and start playing that video or audio file from that very point onwards. It's only a short matter of time before the vast majority of video and audio content becomes part of what we think of as the searchable web. And it's not going to just be broadcast audio and video, it's going to be the YouTube uh, kind of generation. And Wikipedia... Is an interesting example in kind of getting us to think differently about the scope of what we call search. I would argue that that Web 2.0 is the biggest knowledge management success that we've had in a very long time. How do we, how do we give people the tools and the incentives to create content that then becomes searchable? And if you think about the very tight relationship between Google and Wikipedia, right? People care about getting the content right on a Wikipedia page because they know it's going to be found a lot through Google. So so search and the creation of content are part of of one kind of wider system. I've got a a quick example here from my own experience. I've been using the, the, the public library a lot more in the last year or so. And one of the reasons is this little link here, request this title. Like I said in the beginning of this talk, I'm kind of lazy. I don't really like driving to library and searching through that complex Dewey Decimal system to find what I'm looking for. Here I can just do a search online. And to be honest, a lot of times I do my search in Amazon, find a book I want, go to the library site, find it there, can't find it here, I can, go, I can use their interlibrary loan service, whatever. But then I finally get to this request this title and I hit that button and I know that all these librarians are going to scurry around and find the book for me and they're going to ship it to my local branch and they're going to they're send me an email when it's there. Okay? And when I say there, now my wife says that, she, this is called the hold shelf but I prefer to think of it as my shelf, right? <laughs> I, can, I can kind of go, I can just drive over there and, and get the book uh, without, without any, any, any real search cost. Okay? We need to think about the broader system. In this case, searching is connected to services that bridge physical and digital experiences. There are many, many possible futures of search, There's the official future, right? Well, it's artificial intelligence or visualization or natural language queries, right? Those those three in particular have been the, the future of search for a few decades now. There's a lot of new and interesting ways of thinking about where search might go, and we certainly don't have time to get into them right now. There's a lot of interesting ways to explore possible futures of search. And I think that this community has a lot to add there because when we're doing research within the context of user experience, we are helping to explore and create and design possible futures. But we also need to keep reaching out to areas like future studies. What are some of the tools, scenario planning, backcasting, that we can bring into our toolset to explore where things might go down the line. And there have actually been some interesting sessions at recent IA summits on these topics. Of course, we need to make sure that we don't fall prey to apophenia, the spontaneous perception of connections and meaningfulness in unrelated patterns, that we don't see patterns that don't exist. And I want to sort of start to wrap up by suggesting that we don't need to look too far into the future to be dealing with some really important and difficult problems. I would argue that search is a wicked problem with no definitive formulation, a lot of uncertainty and interdependencies, incomplete, contradictory, and changing requirements. This is starting to feel familiar. Um, Stakeholders with radically different worldviews and different frames for understanding the, the project or process. And right there, we need to recognize that search is a big project, right? If you want to move to a faceted navigation model, that's a big project. But search is also an ongoing process. We need to refine and refine and refine. The devil is in the details. The problem is never truly solved. And the only way to move forward on this problem is by looking at search as a wider system, right? It's not just about the software or the interface. There's a number of different elements, and we need to be working on all of them. But I'm confident that the folks in this community can help us move forward, because as F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, the test of a first-rate information architect is the ability to hold a gazillion opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. So, to conclude... I wanted to use the the kaleidoscope as a a, a sort of a a provocative image. When I was a little child in England, I had had one of these kaleidoscopes. And it's a very simple tube. And as you rotate the tube, it uses light and reflection and mirrors to create some really beautiful patterns. And every time you turn the tube, you get some new patterns. And, of course, the kaleidoscope also invokes images such as the telescope and the microscope, helping us to zoom in and out, look at the very big picture, and then look at the smallest of details. And that's sort of part of what I'm aiming at with search patterns. My hope is that with each example and each pattern that we look at, we're turning the lens of the kaleidoscope a little, and we're seeing differently. We're thinking differently about search, and we're recognizing both the tiniest of details, and the biggest of pictures. And with that, I will wrap up. The presentation is on SlideShare, and uh, I'm happy to answer a few questions.
0: Hello?
1: While we're waiting for a question, I just want to note that I'm going to have to run out of here right after the session, because I'm uh, facilitating a topic table.
0: (laughs) Any questions? I noticed uh, one of your slides had a term, uh, black swan hunting. Can you briefly describe what that is?
1: Yeah, there's a, a wonderful book that came out, I believe, last year called The Black Swan, and It talks about the fact that we we underestimate or underappreciate the potential for completely unexpected events to change the world. Uh, And the author actually uses September 11th as an example where he says, that event couldn't have happened if people believed it could happen. And yet, once it happened, it dramatically changed uh, perspectives, at least within the U.S. Okay? Um, and so I think that we need to kind of recognize that while we can use a number of methods to try to look into the, the future, we need to kind of be humble and recognize that there may be things that come out of left field that come from completely other disciplines uh, and communities that dramatically change the problem that we're dealing with. Another question? Actually, just I noticed the one um, pattern you showed of pearl growing. Has that been discussed before, or is that your term? Um, pearl growing is a is a very old term from the world of library science, um, and you know it's it's a nice example where if we sort of understand the behavior of experts, if we study expert searchers, we can then start to think, well, how can we take their strategies and create interfaces and approaches that make that kind of uh, approach, that strategy, easy for novice users. And so we see examples in the search space where uh, uh, you find a particular document, and you've got a link to find similar or more like this. I think we have time for one more. Hi, when is your book due? When is the book coming out? In my most optimistic (laughs) moments, I think maybe next year, but I wouldn't bet on it. (laughs) And with that, I'd just like to thank you all for your attention.